It is Wednesday, June the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined today by our political correspondent, Harry McGee. How are you, Harry? Uh, Very good, Hugh. Thank you. And making a very welcome return to this podcast, Assistant News Editor, Mary Minahan. Hi, Mary. Hi, Hugh. Uh, a little later, we're going to be joined by Liam Thornton, who's uh, assistant professor in law at UCD. We're going to be discussing direct provision, which is one of the items on the agenda for the government formation talks. There does seem to be general agreement this morning that those talks between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party really have to be completed by the end of this week, which means we are now very much at the sharp end of those negotiations. Harry, you've been reporting on this. Where are they at now and what are the sticking points? Well, the deadlines have been uh, successively pushed back, but that's no surprise to anybody who has been following uh, negotiations uh, at at any time during their careers that they set a deadline and invariably that deadline has been missed. So uh, about 10 days ago, Leo Varadkar was saying that he hoped an agreement would be ready by last Friday. Uh, That was missed. And then they talked about Tuesday and then they talked about Thursday. But it looks like Thursday, which is tomorrow, will not be achieved. And they're kind of aiming, perhaps, uh, to get towards Friday. In that same speech, the Taoiseach was also talking about the possibility of a hard deadline. And that is really the end of June. We essentially have a caretaker government at the moment. We have uh, ministers who are unelected. Uh, We have a Shannon that can't uh, begin uh, its uh, proceedings because uh, a new Taoiseach has to nominate uh, 11 members. And obviously we don't have a new Taoiseach and that process can't happen yet. And already we have a backlog of legislation that's building up also the need for new legislation and in particular uh, the uh, there's a need to renew the authority of the special criminal court uh, in the first instance uh, there's uh, a, a number of important um, European laws that have to be transposed into Irish law in order for Ireland to access uh, some of the coronavirus emergency uh, funding and then there's uh, other legislation that's necessary for the day-to-day operation of of uh, government. So the end of June really is, is when uh, things have to happen. The alternative scenario for that is a pretty complicated one and not a pretty one. Uh, it involves makeshift uh, governments continuing or else uh, an election sometime in the uh, autumn or winter uh, at a time when Ireland is facing possibly uh, uh, its sharpest recession uh, in living memory, if not in the uh, history of the state. So back to negotiations. They, I mean, I, I was talking to a number of people from all parties yesterday and really uh, how well it's going depends on who you're talking to. As we know, there are two kind of camps within the Green parties, those who are very positively disposed towards government. And then there are those who uh, don't really want to go into a coalition uh, with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, but are doing so uh, uh, under uh, sufferance. So um, I spoke to a couple yesterday who I'd regard as kind of more uh, veering towards government and they were kind of saying they think that it can be achieved. Uh, there's still a little bit to go. Uh, those who are of a more negative bent uh, were kind of saying, you know, uh, the uh, parties, uh, other parties are beginning to uh, backslide uh, we don't uh, believe that they're going to live up to commitments. Uh, they're already beginning to kind of slip a little bit away from some of the stuff that they were uh, committing to. And we really need to have big wins if we, were a- if we were to have any success in putting this to our membership. And of course, we must recall that when the Greens do put it to their membership, 
uh, they will need a, a majority not of 50% but of 66.6% or two thirds. And it's a very biz- big ask. It's not as cohesive or as uh, sticky uh, a party as it was uh, in 2007. It's much bigger membership, much newer membership. And the membership is probably more diverse now. Uh, it's not full of, it's not uh, cram packed like sardines full of environmentalists anymore. There's plenty of them. But there are others who have a a, a very uh, green environmental outlook, but are also concerned about uh, other issues, including social issues, stuff like anti-capitalism. And some of them have come uh, from street protests like the water protests, uh, like the uh, uh, the uh, Extinction Rebellion, uh, like the Repeal the Eighth campaign. So they have other feathers to their cap. So the sticky issues uh, at the moment, you are housing. Uh, uh, land use, uh, rewetting the bogs is uh, a big one. Agriculture, which needs a reduction in emissions. I think the Greens accept that it might go all the way towards 7% in that particular area, but other areas might compensate for that. Uh, finance remains a big sticking issue. Uh, we're going to have a huge deficit. Uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are saying that at some stage in the next couple of years, we're going to have to start tackling uh, that deficit. The Greens are opposing that because they think that that will mean uh, a return to austerity politics uh, which would not go down well with many uh, of its own base. So they're the kind of, some of the transport is, of course, uh, cycling, walking, public transport versus roads uh, remains a big sticking uh, point as well. Plus, how to measure that 7% uh, target, how to get 7% on average of reductions in emissions every year. The Greens want to make sure that it's not all being backloaded uh, until 28, 29, 30 because they think commitments might not be met at that stage. And also, a new government might be in power that might not be uh, sympathetic uh, to the policies and aims of this government. So, I mean, generally, I mean, I thought the moodometer was okay yesterday. I thought people were saying, yes, uh, we can achieve a a good deal, but there are still so many conditionalities uh, uh, attached to it. Uh, that it would be a fool uh, to make a prediction. And I have been the fool who has made predictions before and has suffered very badly for it. So I'm not going to make a prediction at this moment in time. I'm going to go to Mary in a second, Harry, but just to follow up just with, with one further question on that. With that clock ticking as loudly as it is now, really, with a, a resolution required before before the end of this week, going by, by what you're saying, is there not a fear on the Green side, given that all these bones of contention really seem to be about deliverables for the Green Party and what their red lines are, that they'll be bumped into something that they just can't uh, that they just can't get past the membership um, or wouldn't want to sign up to anyway. Yeah, I think they were they were that that was a fear, that was a concern for them last week. They uh, were very frustrated that a number of plenary sessions were uh, cancelled last week at short notice, three in a row, and they were concerned that with the clock ticking, uh, that the other parties would just rush in at the last moment and kind of coerce or force them into uh, some kind of unpalatable deal that they can't sell to the membership. But the kind they kind of the comfort blanket that the Green Party has you is that it has to put everything to its uh, members. And its members do look at policy. I mean, in general, uh, its members are very policy-focused and policy-oriented. Um, yeah, personality politics, of course, plays a part. They deny it, but of course, there's always, you know, the, the game of politics is about who is stabbing who in the back, and there's a little bit of that uh, apparent in the Greens at the moment. But they do, in fairness to them, look at policy. So if it's not down in black and white and policy in a way that is livable with or palatable uh, to its membership, I don't think it's going to sell. So the programme for government that's agreed, the draft programme, will have to have oodles of detail and the kind of detail uh, that those who have green tinged glasses uh, like to see written down. 
Mary, one of the reasons we wanted to get you in the podcast today is that you literally wrote the book on that previous experience of the Green Party in government in 2007, which which Harry which Harry mentioned there. A very different time, a very different situation. Bertie O'Hearn, on the face of it, didn't necessarily need the Greens in government, but wanted to be assured of a certain level of stability. Uh, we can all laugh hollowly when we see how that government actually turned out uh, in the end, in retrospect, but hindsight is a great thing. But a very different type of a time and a very different type of a place. Uh, Ireland was a very different type of a place, but there was some similarities. And one was there was a change of leadership as the Greens entered government. Yeah, that's right. I think there are like more similarities than people would think, you know, and as the Greens are in the position they are now, they're looking at uh, compromise and compromise is really, really hard for ideological politicians, which the Green the Greens are. John Bowman said, you know, they're not out to save their seats, they're out to save the planet, that that's the kind of person that is in the Green Party. But being in coalition, being in an administration is all about compromise. And like, for God's sake, Trevor Sargent, when he was a junior minister for agriculture, he'd been a vegetarian forever and he, he started eating meat again to uh, <laughs> to make sure that Irish meat was up to standard. You know, it's the, it's the ultimate kind of compromise. And that, that the cohesion of that coalition was sorely tested and it, it ended horribly for uh, for both uh, the Greens and Fianna Fáil, but particularly for the Greens. And uh, as you say, there was a change of leadership at the top of Fianna Fáil during that. And um, Brian Cowan came into power and that put a different complexion on Fianna Fáil. But I think the thing that the Greens were battling against, and I think they'll battle against again, is that there was this kind of perception that they were all about four legs good, two legs bad. You know, there was a relentless focus on their policies, which were really dear to them about um, you know, animal rights and protecting animals and so on. And there, I, I think that was very frustrating for some urban Greens for whom it wasn't really an issue. You know, you had people like Paul Gogarty, John Gormley even. Obviously, they cared about those matters, but they were very annoyed at how the media focused so strongly on them. I think that's something that may happen again because there will be a relentless media focus on the leadership contest in the Greens, which in a way is a much kind of sexier story than drilling down into the minutiae of what the Greens actually want on emissions and so on, as Harry has touched on. But certainly uh, something that the green handlers in the last administration uh, from 07 to 2011, they were really keen to position the party as heavily involved in attempts to rectify the economy and the banking sector uh, rather than married to these niche uh, policy areas. But, you know, the, the divisions between Fianna Fáil and the Greens were real on things like stag hunting in 2010. You, you remember the seven Fianna Fáil TDs lined up to speak out in the all chamber against their own government's legislation uh, to ban stag hunting. And that, and that showed, I think, that the story, the story wasn't a media construct. It was something very real. And one of those people that spoke out actually was Thomas Byrne from Meath. Uh, he backed the legislation in the end, uh, despite intense lobbying from pro-hunting groups. But, you know, it was a really, really serious juncture in the state's economic history. And, and in the private party rooms, you had Brian Cowan getting completely exasperated. Like, he couldn't believe that so much much precious time and energy was being spent on this matter. But that's the way it was. And one of the Fianna Fáil TDs uh, was saying that this was an ideological sop to a minority partner, which didn't understand the realities of rural life. And um, 
uh, Matty McGrath, who who comes up again and again in these things. You, you probably remember Harry, our colleague, Fia Kelly, uh, got a fantastic quote from Matty when he said they want to stop the pussycat going after the mouse. That was, you know, it was really uh, a popular misconception, I suppose, at the time about the Green parties. And it, it got really, really ugly. And uh, you might remember um, pairing was withdrawn in Leinster House and Matty McGrath then ended up voting against, he was, of course, in Fianna Fáil at the time, he ended up voting against the government and being expelled from the parliamentary party and Michael Lowry and Jackie Healy Ray uh, followed his his stance even though they'd backed the administration since 2007 so you know these are these are real issues which which run deep in rural life so they're not to be dismissed and that sort of that that folk memory I think has stayed on the back benches of Fianna Fáil and and they really are uncomfortable with some of the things that the Greens hold really really dear Mary, can I ask you, there was a very interesting editorial in the Irish Times, which is not words that often pass my lips, to be fair. Um, but this particular one was um, was about setting the Greens in a European context, both in terms of where the European Union is going with a proposed, you know, Green New Deal as a, as a, as a major plank of the of the new administration in, in, in Brussels. Um, but also, you know, there have been surges and advances for green parties across Europe. And it made some comparisons with other European countries and there are different paths to power. And in, in many cases, it's been in an alliance with social democratic parties or parties of the left. But in some cases, because of the domestic politics of those countries, it has tended to be more with um, centre or centre-right parties. Finland, for for example, is, is one example. Now, the Greens are on the verge of, potentially, for the second time in just over a decade, going into power with parties of the centre-right. Is that does that sit well with them? And it was was that a problem the last time or is it maybe more of a problem this time because the party's changed? Yeah, it's possibly more of a problem this time uh, just because, as Harry has said, uh, it's a very different Green Party now. A lot of people, I think, haven't given the Green Party much thought really since 2011 and that, that's what happens when you're in opposition. Um, but it's a very, very different party now. If you think of the type of person that joins a party when it's effectively down and out as the Green Party was uh, uh, after 2011... You know, they're not the ambitious young lawyers that you might see attracted to some other uh, political parties, although I'm sure there are plenty of ambitious young lawyers that are attached to the Greens as well. But what I'm saying is that these are really, you know, passionate, ideological people. As Harry said, a lot of them are from the the very left, really, of the Irish political spectrum. So we have to view the party in a completely different way from how we viewed it in 2011. And I think the whole leadership contest that's coming up feeds into all that. But it is important too to realise that the Greens have uh, I suppose an international flavour that other political parties in Ireland don't have. You know you've seen Greens in power in uh, Germany Uh, there's been Czech Greens Swedish Greens, Estonian Greens and they've all risen and fallen in the way that our Greens have done the same thing. That's what happens and they go into power uh, and you know they go go through a period of, of going into Parliament and then 
losing all their seats. This is, you know, it's not unique to Ireland. This has happened across the green spectrum, right across Europe and elsewhere. And the Greens are very much aware of that. They're very in touch with other Green parties in other countries. That's, I think, why they're not quite so shaken. They're not quite so devastated uh, when when they do lose uh, seats. But of course, it's very, very difficult. It's very, very expensive. It's very, very hard to keep going. And because of our, um, I suppose, unique political system, you do have a situation where small parties with niche policies can be regarded as wielding what appears to be a disproportionate amount of power. You know, you might have seen that with the Progressive Democrats. That was maybe particular to that to that period of time in Ireland. But then you would have had, say, Pat Rabbit when he was heading the Labour Party, complaining uh, that they were getting so much grief, but they only really got a very small uh, portion of the vote. And that's why they were able to wield less influence within government. So, you know, the Greens have this international perspective that other parties don't have. They've obviously been... Um, you know, greatly affected by what happened to them in 2011. Uh, I remember when John Gormley was stepping down uh, after that very bruising election. He was saying that the party in future needed to be much more aggressive and to take no prisoners. Now, I, I suppose it's debatable whether or not uh, Eamon Ryan has that kind of aggressive personality type. I think it's fair to say that he probably doesn't. Uh, he's, um, you know, a very kind of... Um, I suppose this could be a criticism and something positive is that he he's he's into compromise and and that is uh, you know good uh, for our our system which is uh, always going to be made up of coalitions now in future but um I think uh, a lot of uh, purely ideological people in the green parties in the green party do have some difficulties with that Harry when Pat Lee, he was on this podcast last week, uh, he described one wing of the Greens as the social justice warrior wing, which uh, got, a, got a bit of pushback from our listeners. They, they weren't very happy with that with that description. But there is a kind of a right-left divide, maybe oversimplifying it. But there is a socially radical progressive wing to the Green Party, which seems to be more prominent now. You, you've been doing quite a lot of digging into what this membership is like now at the party. Yeah, maybe Pat's uh, description would fall foul of the Trade Description Act, but he's in the right uh, parish when it comes to describing, when you're trying to describe the different um, sides, the different wings in the Green Party, it's not, uh, the, the party is a much wider one now. I mean, it, it's always been interested in social issues and it's always been interested in politics per se, but the, envir- the environment was, all, was always the, the raison d'etre for, for the Green Party, and it still is, but... Um, the, 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 if you're looking for a kind of a split or a kind of a dichotomy in the Greens nowadays, I think it expresses itself in the form of those who would be kind of purely environmental uh, versus uh, those who are interested in what might be described as social justice or progressive issues. And you can see that there would be a certain uh, chiming uh, between the views of, of those on, on that particular wing and perhaps people in Sinn Féin, people in, in People Before Profit and the Socialist Party, Social Democrats, other left wing parties in, in terms of, of those issues. So, for example, uh, direct provision. Now, direct provision actually is something that uh, reform of direct provision is something that's shared by, by virtually all Greens of all hues. Uh, and that's um, that's um, that, that's one thing to be noted. But there will be others who would be very strong, for example, on the issue of repealing the eighth. Uh, uh, socially progressive uh, issues uh, which they would hold to be very dear so there's been a move to to remove this three-day kind of pause uh, 
that you have in the uh, termination uh, process uh, at the moment. And that was a subject of uh, some debate. Uh, there are there are those, for example, in terms of finance, who believe uh, that Ireland needs to keep on increasing the deficit until the recession is over. And only then do we begin to tackle the deficit. And that's fallen foul of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. And I don't know. I don't think that particular view is shared by everybody uh, in in the Green Party. So uh, you do get that kind of uh, split, and that split has been. Uh, it, it's it's manifested itself, Hugh, in terms of the leadership competition uh, that is underway uh, at the moment. Catherine Martin has become a repository uh, for those who hold those views within the party, whereas Eamon Ryan uh, would be uh, seen by those who would be more traditional, uh, more uh, focused on the environment. Uh, I'm not saying that they're not all focused on the environment, they are but uh, they would be kind of more and more focused on the environment compared to just focused on the environment. I'm going to get myself into trouble trying to make all these distinctions to you, that's for sure. Uh, you but, are, you know, we all get into trouble. <laughs> Can I ask you though, because yeah. it's a very interesting piece of game theory here, isn't it? Because Catherine Martin is leading the, go- the, she's the deputy leader of the party. She's also the leader of the Greens negotiating team. But I understand it that on the, the trickiest questions, some of which you, you, you laid out earlier on, if there is no resolution at some point, it, it, it goes to the leaders. That leaves a potential, uh, well, am I overstating it to say that leaves a potential Michael Collins goes to London, De Valera stays in Dublin kind yeah, of a but the, the potential quest- setup. Yeah, the question is, who is Michael Collins? Is it well, Eamon Ryan? I think Ryan, Ryan is, is Michael Collins in this or it could be Catherine Martin. I mean, there are two There are two different scenarios. Yes, it does go to, the, if too much goes to him. Uh, I mean, there's a view uh, amongst those who support Catherine Martin that, that uh, as Mary was pointing out, that Eamon Ryan is too conciliatory and that he will, he's just too nice and that he will compromise without kind of achieving the kind of the hard deal or getting the big wins uh, that the Greens will require if they're going to go into government with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. So, um, so if too much is left to him, there's, uh, they're, they're afraid that, that uh, in some sense that Eamon Ryan uh, will give too much away or yield too much uh, ground. But then there's a difficulty for Catherine Martin if she, and her team if they do that, because they, it'll be said to them, well, why did you not try to agree a harder deal? Uh, and um, there, there's also a difficulty for her now that she's declared herself as a leadership candidate. If a deal is um, is concluded that she regards to be suboptimum or suboptimal, uh, she um, and then she doesn't back it fully or gives a conditional backing or even rejects it, uh, she will be open to um, the uh, claim from her detractors that she is putting her personal ambition. Uh, above the greater good of the party and allowing her judgment in relation to government being clouded by another agenda, which is the the leadership agenda, which is playing out in parallel uh, with the government formation uh, negotiations. So there is a kind of there there are vulnerabilities for for both her and Eamon Ryan in terms of the kind of chess moves that will have to take place over the next uh, couple of days. But from talking to Greens yesterday, uh, of all hues, I think they are all trying to get as good a deal as possible. I think the difference is that uh, is, is in defining that good deal. I think the Catherine Martin uh, group would define that in, in more harder terms, perhaps, than those who are backing uh, Eamon Ryan. And that's where you might see the kind of divergence over the next uh, 10 days or two weeks. But, I mean, if the, if the parliamentary party is not united behind a deal, I think its chances of getting through 
uh, the general uh, membership of the party would be very much uh, diminished. I think as it is, it's marginal. It's a very big bar, a high bar to get get through. Uh, but if the United, uh, if if the parliamentary party does not present a united front in terms of backing uh, a deal, I, I would be very doubtful as to whether it would get through its uh, convention. Mary, there's a critique floating around of the Green Party right now that the decision to actually have an active um, leadership uh, contest within the next few months is a sort of a self-indulgence and speaks a sort of a lack of seriousness. And it harks all the way back to one of my most disliked phrases in Irish politics, the you're playing senior hurling now, quote from Seamus Brennan to the Greens all those uh, all those years ago, and feeds into a kind of a patronising attitude to some extent towards the party, just because they happen to run their affairs and perhaps have different priorities than some other political parties. Yeah, there is an element of that. Uh, there is, uh, you know, all this pesky democracy that the Greens indulge themselves in. But uh, the fact is, it's 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 in their constitution. Uh, yes, uh, you will hear people like Kieran Cuff, more senior, maybe people in the Green Party saying the timing is uh, pretty bad. And it's very, very hard, I think, for people um, to imagine that they're going to be able to park this uh, contest, this personality contest, which it is in some ways, and just concentrate on getting a deal. Um, But they're insisting they're going to be able to do that. Uh, I mean, I remember being in the party headquarters in Suffolk Street in May 2011 when Eamon Ryan uh, became leader and he said that the first task he had was to encourage young people to join the party ahead of the 2014 local elections and also to slay the myths that the Greens were against rural rural development and were Dublin-centric. But, like, it's taken nine long years before you get Micheál Martin to go on the Late Late Show and say, you know, it, it's unfair to characterise the Greens in that way. And, indeed, you've subsequently heard Leo Varadkar speaking in a similar way, obviously directly addressing their backbenchers and their party members in rural areas, saying, you know, the Greens aren't something to be afraid of. But, you know, in a way, uh, that's good for the Greens. But on the other hand, they might think, no, we actually want those people to be somewhat afraid of us. So that's a delicate one. And then, of course, you know, Catherine Martin isn't uh, new on the scene. Like it was a month after Eamon Ryan uh, became leader that she became deputy leader that was in uh, the Hilton Hotel in the Grand Canal I remember that well because uh, it was the one and only time I was clamped in Dublin and it's very mortifying being clamped outside a Green Party conference because you feel like as everyone else speeds off on their bicycles but um, I suppose um, Catherine Martin now uh, she's she's kept her I think it's fair to say a relatively low profile throughout her time in Leinster House perhaps not through her own choice obviously there would have been uh, more focus in terms of media appearances and so on on Eamon Ryan um, and she has as our colleagues have said remained sphinx-like throughout these negotiations which she is in the unusual position of uh, leading despite not being uh, wholeheartedly enthusiastic about it would seem but um you know is she this firebrand that uh some of the more uh left-leaning and uh radical people within the greens want to get behind i suppose that remains to be seen a lot of people within the green party say that she taught them to canvas and you know they'd be very very grateful to her for that but yes that patronizing attitude to the greens it, it still remains um 
sometimes they they are their own worst enemies. I, I, I think they, they still do show some naivety when it comes to the game of politics. If you I think it's fair to say that they, they bungled really their Shannon allocation. They they should have got more seats than they got. And you know, there is real horse trading and parties do talk to each other and it seems that the Greens didn't quite nail down their deals properly, but Perhaps that can be rectified a little bit when it comes to the Taoiseach's nominations if they get this government deal across the line. Finally, on, on, on this point of the Greens, Harry, I'd just like to ask you, I mean, Mary makes a very good point there about Catherine Martin. I have very little sense of who she is, what kind of a person she is, what, what, what the key issues are that, that animate her, what kind of a strategic position she takes as a leader. And that's true, really, I suppose, of the entire Green Party, because they're all new TDs with the exception of, of Eamon Ryan and Catherine Martin. And Eamon Ryan has been so much the face of the party through very bleak times, in particular over the last decade or so. But now you've got this parliamentary party, Harry, and some of them, if this if these negotiations are successful, are going to end up on the front bench and as junior ministers. What are they like? Um, do you want me to give a psychological assessment of every one of the twelve um, <laughs> TDs? That's it. No, just just a, just a broad sweep of history. Oh yeah, no, I'm only messing. I'm only messing. Um, I, I they're 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 new, uh, and um, you, you do get comments from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil uh, in terms of uh, some of the Greens that they are a, a little bit like Bambi in the headlights in terms of uh, some of the big decisions that have to be uh, made. They found out very quickly that in the world of politics, especially at the business end of politics in terms of government, there is no such thing as a shallow end. So they have been thrown into the deep end and they've been essentially told to to sink or swim. So it's been very difficult uh, for them. You have people who are national school teachers, who are working as engineers, uh, who are kind of counsellors, but working part time uh, suddenly uh, at the uh, at, at, at the at the, at the centre uh, of of a process that will determine the future of this country for the next five years. So the the uh, the, the difficulties are onerous. The the the, the you know I mean, TDs from 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 each party, newly elected TDs tend to be a, a mixed bunch. But mo- most, I mean, the Greens tend to be very sincere. Uh, they tend to be quite uh, policy focused. Uh, they tend not to have uh, sometimes the kind of the harder, sharper edges. Uh, uh, the kind of the uh, street fighting qualities that you associate with some of our uh, politicians. Uh, but there are a couple of uh, tough operators amongst them and every party does need to have tough operators because otherwise uh, they're going to get blown over uh, like the wind when it comes to negotiations or when it comes to, to big decisions uh, being uh, made. But they realise, I mean, the, the, the Greens realise that if they go into government, that no matter what happens, no matter how successfully uh, the government uh, is going to be, uh, if it steers us out of the recession, if they do achieve a, a lot of the policy areas that they want, that they're still going to suffer after the next election because we're we're living uh, in a, a much more fragmented society, a much more urbanised society. Uh, the fealties that, that characterised Irish politics for, for generations have dissipated in the past uh, decade. And, uh, you know, the, the electorate do tend to astound our politicians with their ingratitude at the end of every electoral cycle, irrespective of how well or how badly uh, they have done. And smaller parties know that once they go into government, in general, irrespective of the outcome, that they're going to take a a really bad beating at the end of it electorally. And the Greens know that that's going to happen uh, to them. So that's why... um, 
that that that's why they have have been. That's one of the reasons they've been cautious. The second reason is a lot of them are new, so they they they'll be naturally cautious in relation to not making any decision uh, that's going to come back uh, and haunt them. But I've spoken to a lot of them, and they're 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 grasp of policy. I mean, they're really policy focused party, and their grasp of policy and issues is always uh, very impressive. And of the bunch they have, which is fourteen in the parliamentary party. You know, as a bunch, I think they, they as the doll goes on, I think they will make for a, a relatively uh, impressive um, core. But it's very early to say because, I mean, I, I haven't seen any of them speaking really besides one or two in the doll. We haven't seen them operating because everything has been in, in, a, in, a, a, status or in, a state, in a state of abeyance over the past uh, two or three months. So you could only judge... Uh, their ability really on kind of personal conversations that you've had with them on, on a one-to-one basis. So, you know, they're new and I think they are a bit daunted. Uh, but I think as time goes on, I think they will come across as a relatively competent and a really, relatively uh, impressive bunch. But come back to me in a year and see if I've been spectacularly <laughs> wrong in relation to that assessment, Hugh. OK, listen, you mentioned direct provision earlier on and we're going to be discussing that after this short break. You're listening to The Irish Times. Now, Mary has left us, but Harry is still here. And we're now joined by Liam Thornton. Liam is an assistant professor uh, in law at UCD Sutherland School of Law. And uh, he wrote an op-ed in yesterday's Irish Times on Tuesday in relation to direct provision, which is one of the subjects we understand is under negotiation on uh, formation of government. Uh, Liam, you're very welcome. You've been working in this area for a long time. Was there a breakthrough or not last weekend when um, the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, committed to moving towards the end of direct provision? I think taking the minister's statement at face value, um, yeah, I think it it is a breakthrough. Um, it's a breakthrough that we have the Minister for Justice acknowledging that direct provision um, is not a suitable system. Um, it's a breakthrough when we have the Taoiseach somewhat ignoring his other comments in the Dáil, but acknowledging that much of direct provision is substandard. Um, the only thing that I, I, I suppose I would maybe kind of urge a bit of caution on is that this has been known for 20 years. Um, why now? Why has it taken until now for uh, the Minister for Justice, the Taoiseach, to, um, to, to kind of acknowledge what has been a reality and which all evidence over 20 years have pointed to that direct provision was substandard and inhumane and solely in, about incarceration um, within institutions uh, or type of incarceration within institutions of persons seeking protection. Um, in addition to your op-ed, I was looking at a blog post that you put up last month in relation to the positions of the different political parties on this. And, you know, as we know, the, some of them currently um, or in the last in the recent election um, had uh, commitments to end direct provision. But you pointed out that all of them, including the Green Party and the Labour Party, when they were in government... Um, didn't seem so committed to such a thing. Didn't seem. They totally supported the system. In fact, it became the best thing since sliced pan once both the Green Party back in, and I know it's a while ago now, but in particular the Labour Party, which did have a position, um, not necessarily abolished direct provision, but it certainly was well above, let's just say, what they achieved. And I suppose they're the Labour Party's core achievement wing government was getting uh, a report that except for some important issues, remains fairly, you know, hasn't been fully implemented. Um, So, yeah, so all political parties, it was Fianna Fáil, PDs that created uh, direct provision. Um, 
you know, when the green, Greens came on board, um, it, it would have been thought, given kind of, I suppose, a lot of the parties... Uh, knowledge of the issue, um, activism back in kind of 2008, 9, uh, 10, that, that there would be something. But uh, I mean, documents that I've got of government minutes, uh, minutes, uh, minutes of government meetings, policy papers, um, you know, they, they show that I suppose the Green Party in government didn't express any real interest in indirect provision. Um, and I suppose we are where we are now today. And um, it, it certainly was very much a key policy platform in their manifesto in in January. Um, and um, in fairness, they do seem to want that policy platform that they, you know, that they'd kind of highlighted uh, in January, February. They do want it implemented. Um, now, the degree to which what we're hearing from the Taoiseach, uh, from the Minister for Justice, um, in relation to DP, uh, direct provision and um, whether this is kind of, a, I mean, it's total change, a total turnabout from, you know, only a few months ago we had a tarnished that standing up in the doll, you know, waxing lyrical about what a wonderful system it was. So I think I used the word scepticism in, in my article. I'd, I'd probably reevaluate that. Maybe caution would be a better word because we have 20 years of what has happened in the past. 20 years of failed promises. So some hopeful caution, maybe. I mean, I, I, I should point out, I should mention the fact that, I mean, you've been under, undertaking a massive project and all this, looking at the documentation over those those 20 years in government. Is there a sort of an inevitable kind of regulatory capture that happens with, with politicians that, that they change their tune? Some of them have changed their tune so dramatically when they're actually in government? Well, well I mean... The, the, the typical example is Alan Shatter, who made um, comparisons of direct provision about how horrific they were and kind of like they almost looked like kind of war camps in about 2009. By the time he had got into government, once again, direct provision was the most fantastic system that uh, has ever um, existed, most fantastic institution ever created uh, by the state. Um, so, yeah, so I think there is kind of that capture. Um, I suppose a key issue, at least from my analysis of kind of all the documentation and, you know, don't believe my analysis. Go and see the documentation for yourself on exploringdirectprovision.ie. Um, I, I, I suppose kind of... Key issue I would have is that, well, within the bureaucracy, within administration, within the civil service, it's the exact same people. You know, okay, they change faces slightly over the, you know, and have obviously changed faces over the last 20 years. But it's the kind of bureaucratic administrative response to we can't do anything else other than the direct provision. And then the kind of that kind of, you know, really silly comparisons being made with other EU member states or sometimes with kind of countries that are not within the European Union about, sure, look, at, it'd be so much worse if people were um, uh, were in France, were in Greece, um, um, or within, you know, and usually a named country on, uh, on the African continent. Um, so, I mean, if people, and if the Green Party are really serious, and I do hope they are, about abolishing direct provision, it's not only the political issue, it is the bureaucratic civil servant issue that needs to be explored. Um, and that those who have uh, been in kind of the, the bureaucracy of direct provision 
a question does arise, just a question does arise as to whether those civil servants should remain into what might come next once direct provision over time will be abolished. Harry, what do you make of that as somebody who's been observing the Irish political scene for a long time? It's a subject that comes up from time to time, the idea that, you know, no matter who you elect or changes of power, that uh, certain policies continue regardless, largely because they're driven by the uh, by the civil service. Yes, um, I, I think that uh, proposition is a, um, a valid one. Um, and uh, direct provision has had a long and um, unsavoury uh, uh history in Ireland. I think it had its beginnings in 2004 when there was a referendum on the right of children of uh, non-Irish people who were born in Ireland uh, uh, to have residence in Ireland as Irish uh, citizens and uh, the referendum uh, that was held at the time uh, abolished that. I think there was a kind of a hue and cry at the time uh, that was uh, driven uh, by the then Fianna Fáil government and then Minister of Justice John O'Donoghue uh, about uh, in, in the run up to that, uh, about uh, it, certainly in the late nineties, early two two thousands, about uh, a massive uh, influx. Now every government must have uh, the right to control uh, immigration policy. You know, I mean, I I don't agree with an open door policy because I think you do have to look at you know whether a society can accommodate. Uh, X amount of people and there are difficulties as we see in relation to housing in relation to employment that have to be looked at in in, in the context of of how uh, a state is viable uh, or or not but there was a a hue and cry at the time about huge influxes that didn't really materialise yes the numbers were increasing at the time uh, but they were manageable in different ways uh, than the way that was eventually uh, agreed by the government and direct provision has been a scandal since day one and I think the one of the I think Liam uh, uh, has made reference to it in his op-ed pieces. One of the uh, acts that that highlighted it, it, it in an extraordinarily impactful way was the series that was done by Carl O'Brien and Brian O'Brien uh, for the Irish Times back in 2014 that exposed the you know the reality of direct provision and the terrible. Uh, um, existence that people have. I mean, they were like spancelled donkeys, to be quite honest. You know, they were uh, put into uh, caravan parks, uh, put into overcrowded hotels. Uh, They were living with strangers. Uh, Their children were open to exploitation. They weren't allowed to work. Uh, They weren't allowed to cook for themselves. Their meals were provided. And they um, were essentially under house arrest. Uh, That's the best way uh, that one could uh, describe her. Describe it, and that situation has uh, has, uh, has been uh, sustained to the present day. And I mean, even in recent weeks, we've seen the ludicrous and terrible situation that arose in Cahir Saivin, when uh, when a, a group of 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 people uh, who were seeking asylum were all uh, herded into a hotel in Cahir Saivin, and then it subsequently emerged that one of them uh, had COVID nineteen. And um, and suddenly we had a, a cluster there. And I mean, I thought I was just so plaintive and so heartrending to see people have been interviewed by reporters who were outside uh, to, uh, to, to people who were inside and were, who were contained. Now, I, I noted in Liam's piece, he was saying that the recommendations in the McMahon report from 2016 uh, were, were tepid and, and perhaps they, they were in an objective sense. But in the sense, the subjective sense, of the politics that were uh, pertaining at the time, you know, they were far-reaching uh, enough in relation to allowing 
those who uh, were seeking asylum to work and to have the right of work, you know, uh, and that should have been implemented much sooner uh, than it actually was. And also the uh, the the ridding um, of these, uh, you know, direct provision centres where people were kind of essentially, you know, in stuck in, in dormitory accommodation or rooms uh, for, for years and years. There should have been a kind of a, an own key scenario a long time ago. And of course, uh, politicians were want to use the, the kind of, they don't want to have the pull factor, you know, they don't want to make the regime so attractive here that we're going to have a huge influx. Uh, and I mean, policy has to be formulated around ensuring that, that we're, we're not, you know, overwhelmed. I don't think we're ever going to be overwhelmed given our geographical situation, but there have to be controls, of course. But I always I always thought that that whole pull argument was overstated by dozens and dozens of, of times. Liam, can I can I ask you just a couple of things, two questions, actually, in relation to, to what Harry's talking about there? Um, I, it's absolutely clear that that theory of push and pull um, which was around, you know, about 20 years ago, that essentially to make uh, the experience for people who came to Ireland and claimed asylum as, as unpleasant as possible with a view to cutting down on the numbers who were showing up to do it. Uh, now, whatever any of us may think about the ethics or the morality of that, personally, I don't think, I think it's both unethical and, and immoral when it comes to the kind of treatment that people have been experiencing. Uh, can I ask you, is there data to support that that uh, actually um, had any effect in any way. And then my second question um, is in relation to what happens in a situation if we shut down these uh, often terrible places that we're putting people into at the moment in the midst of we still have a housing crisis? And is there the potential for tension there? And I suppose both these questions play into the fact that questions about immigration, questions about racism uh, are increasingly prominent in many democratic societies. And are there dangers within the road we take out of direct provision in the next few years should we manage to do so? On the whole push-pull factor uh, argument, which, uh, as you noted, 90s, early 2000s was was kind of at its height. Um, never once seen data that actually kind of backed up um, issues about push-pull factors uh, in establishing direct provision. It was a key narrative. That and the protection of the common travel area, and there had been changes in the UK, which we don't have time to go into now, which Ireland basically said, oh, we'll take that. The UK actually abandoned a proposed kind of direct provision system, and we continued it. Um, so no, there's there, there there's not any data. It's based on kind of oh, instinctively, you know, kind of on instinctive gut feeling. If you don't have data for it, then you know, it always kind of. I always wondered why kind of the, that pull factor argument became so dominant. Um, well, at the same time, absolutely acknowledging, yeah, there were kind of certain changes that might have resulted in um, lowering numbers of, of persons seeking protection. But, you know, Ireland has barely ever got, got up to uh, 0.5% of total EU asylum claims we're talking about tiny, tiny numbers, which leads then on to kind of the second issue, what happens when DP shut down? I suppose the day group, and I have had sight of the briefing note that was shared with Iraqis members, they're basically saying that there will be an initial reception period where people may be in what what might be called reception centres. My understanding is that that, it's not a document, but my understanding is that that will be for about 90 days that there may be a 90-day cap 
put in that. What then happens after that? Well, then it may be, and what the briefing document suggests is that it might be kind of housing associations or other kind of organisations who might be responsible for provision of own door accommodation, um, um, you know, maybe subcontracted by the by the state, um, moving away from the for profit model that that we've had for the last uh, twenty years, um. So kind of that is what the briefing document is hinting at, but we'd be a bit cautious with the briefing document. It, it it's just that um, it is kind of some ideas that I understand Warren were not put to a vote in any way by the to the uh, doctor uh, Dr. Catherine Day's group, but was written by kind of Dr. Day as a means of kind of just structuring some discussion. We have to be a bit cautious about the briefing note. But there is a there is a you know there is a potential for tension there isn't there if housing so- Irish housing associations are being commissioned to provide housing for people newly arriving in the in the country when similarly other housing associations are trying to provide accommodation for Irish people who are currently living in hotels or other forms of unsatisfactory accommodation yeah I mean uh, well I will answer your question but you know I do wonder whether family hubs would ever have emerged if we if there wasn't state experience of direct provision Another blog or another uh, blog post or another uh, pod on this issue. We can't rewrite 40 years of successive government creation of a uh, of landlordism, um, whereby it was state policy to kind of just withdraw, in essence, from the housing market, leave it to uh, vultures within um, um, uh, within um, within society to provide for individuals' housing needs without any consideration of affordability and suitability for everyone. And that now being used as a means of uh, ensuring we can continue to degrade asylum seekers, I'd, I'd have a few questions about that. But you're absolutely right. This can't be done. You know, just physically cannot be done overnight or within, you know, hopefully within as sh- short a period as possible, that abolition of direct provision. But it can't be done. Why can't it be done? Why? Because we have a uh, state housing policy dominated by kind of, you know, protection of landlords at all costs and not actually people in need of affordable, safe and sustainable communities. Finally, Harry, what's your read on this? Do you think we're coming to the end of this particular chapter of Irish social history? Uh, I think so. I think um, uh, I one of the things uh, that Green members were united on uh, across the board when I spoke to them last week was an end to direct uh, provision. And that, that's a big issue w- within the party that, that unites the, the fundies and also uh, the relos within the, the party. And they have made it a big issue in the programme for uh, government negotiations. And we, we, as Liam was saying at the start, uh, Charlie uh, Flanagan has agreed to some concessions. I'm sure the concessions and reforms that he has in mind will probably be far uh, more uh, tepid and uh, minor than those envisaged by the Green Party. But I think that the uh, the politicians have caught up with public sentiment. I think public sentiment uh, would would be uh, generally uh, for direct provision to be abolished uh, at present. And I think the political class would probably uh, have probably realised that and probably realised that that particular uh, um, uh, inglorious uh, chapter uh, in Irish uh, uh, history, in Irish political history, is now coming to an end.
Well, it will be very interesting to see what's in a proposed programme for government should such a proposed programme for government emerge in the next few days. And if it does, we'll certainly be covering it here. But thanks to Liam and Harry. We'll leave that there for now. Thanks also to Mary for joining us also and also to our producer, Declan Conlon. If you would like to support the podcast and the other work that we do at the Irish Times, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you do want to get in touch with us, we would be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time. Thanks very much indeed for listening.